This is a podcast of the Church at Indian Lake. Well, we're very happy to be with you today. It's a joy to be with other people that love Jesus. And Jesus is our Savior, and our Lord Jennifer is here with me, and her sister Jackie, our two boys. And Jesus is worth it. We love him, not because we are good, but because he first loved us. We want to thank you also. This church has been very faithful some time ago. In obedience to the Holy Spirit, you raised $12,000 for a project in Darfur in Sudan. I just want to give you a quick report on that before we get into the message this morning. To date, we've got in the eastern part over 65 biofilters have been built and distributed amongst needy people. They're made with local resources. And in the west, southern Darfur, we have three teams of MBBs. These are Muslim background believers, Muslims who've come to Christ, that have been discipled and trained to make these water filters and then to walk around to all the different refugee camps in Darfur and to do community development to, to help people construct these water filters, but importantly also to share their faith. And so I don't know exactly how many water filters have been made to date, but what I do know, I just got a report from our staff last week, is that there are now three groups of seekers that they are meeting with and sharing Christ and the Bible stories and, and the gospel with them because of what your church did. Amen. So thank you very much for that obedience to the Holy Spirit, and I just want you to know that because of your giving, living water, not just physical clean water, but living water, is coming to the Muslim peoples of Darfur. So thank you for that. When you see Darfur on the news, would you just remind yourselves that you're making an impact in this part of Sudan, something that goes beyond humanitarian services, which are good, but you're also bringing the gospel. And thanks for that. Thank you, Pastor Aaron, for the tent to be involved with. I want to lead some of the young people. My wife and I have a picture in our mind for service in the Muslim world. It's kind of like the old military image of there's a wall, and in training, this troop has to get over the wall. It's higher than anyone can jump, so the first person to get to the wall gets down on their hands and knees, and those that follow can run, stand on their back, and springboard over that wall. We see that as our role in the Sudan. We have a team of about 40 people from around the world, and many of them are young. That student age from 18 to about 24. And our role, we feel, is to, to get to that wall and get down on our hands and knees so that the next generation can leap off of us and go forward. And that's what this church is doing through the I Want to Lead concept and through Pastor Aaron. These are our leaders of tomorrow in all the different fields, and we're looking forward to seeing what God will do with them. So thank you for letting me be a part of I Want to Lead. Jesus is not myopic. Jesus not only loves us, Jesus also loves the lost in Brazil and Bangladesh. Jesus loves those who are in despair from Denver to Denmark. The devil and his darkness are spread abroad throughout this earth. And the towns and villages, perhaps the cities that you come from, are also filled with the perishing. And Jesus loves all of them. Jesus loves all people. And while the lost that Jesus loves are everywhere, the light is not. There are peoples and areas of this earth, tribes and tongues, that have less access to light than other places and other people. And those without adequate witness, those without adequate access, are what we call the inconvenient lost. The inconvenient lost are locked behind forbidding borders with hard-to-get, harder-to-keep visas. 
The inconvenient lost are sequestered in sandy, scorching deserts with inhospitable climates. The inconvenient lost are hidden behind veils, burkas, abayas. They live and die in the shadow of minarets. The inconvenient lost are muzzled by clerics in Iran. They are bound by falsehood. They are restricted by fatalism. They are not allowed to think. They are not allowed to probe. They are not allowed to question. The inconvenient lost in our age, in this era, are best represented by the realm and the peoples of Islam. Now, while I admit that there are segments of people that are hard to reach that are not Muslim, they also are inconvenient to our grasp. I propose that Muslim peoples represent the largest, the greatest, the most intimidating block of peoples around this world that are inconveniently placed. In fact, there are over 1,000 Muslim peoples around the world that have no witness. 200 of those Muslim tribes, those Muslim peoples, are larger than 100,000 people. 1,000 distinct peoples, not just unreached, but also unengaged. Unreached, perhaps you have missionaries or Christian witness amongst them, but no one has responded yet, at least not enough to reach their own. The difference between unengaged and unreached is unengaged, there's no witness, there's no missionary, there's no believer, there's no scripture translated, there's no radio broadcast, there's no television programs, there is no light, there is no salt, there is no hope. In March this year, I was in Bremen, Germany for Christoval. Christoval is the European equivalent of Urbana, where 20,000 or more young people came together from all across Western Europe to celebrate Jesus and to seek His will for their life. One of the exhibits was an interactive walkthrough that was set up in a cathedral. It was an opportunity where you could go and pursue interactively God's will for your life. And so they had different tents that had different things that you would interact with to try and determine what God was leading you towards, what God wanted you to do. At the last tent within this exhibit, there was a large oversized book. It was about a yard high and maybe two yards wide. And on that last page, or on that last exhibit, you were meant to take a pen and write down in that book the one reason that you were not following God's will for your life. What was the one thing that was restricting you from doing what God wanted you to do? The leader of the exhibit took me through this book and began to flip through the pages and there were thousands of entries, but one was prevalent and it was written on almost every page of that oversized book numerous times. Over and over again was the German word Angst. Angst, 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 which means fear. Fear as the greatest hindrance to us following what is the Lord's will. I don't believe today that the greatest hindrance in reaching the inconvenient lost is an external foe. Yes, there are demons and devils and powers and regimes and principalities and structures that mitigate against us, but the greatest hindrance to reaching the inconvenient lost lies within us. It is our fear. And that leads me to ask the central question of the morning. What would you do if you had no fear? What would you do if you had no fear? What are the impossible dreams? What are the uncrossable mountains? If money was not an issue, if personal safety did not matter, what is the challenge 
God has laid on your heart, so grand that maybe you've told no one, what inconvenience could you rise to conquer? What people would you rush to reach if you had no fear? I want to implore you this morning not to fear, but to look towards the inconvenient peoples of this earth in our age, not afraid to try, not afraid to cry, and not afraid to die. My favorite biblical figure is Jonathan, the son of Saul. He was the rightful heir to the kingdom. He delighted in David. And yet Jonathan was mighty in his own right. In 1 Samuel 14, Jonathan says to his armor bearer, Nothing hinders God from saving by many or by few. It may be that the Lord works for us. Let us try. Let us go fight the Philistines. If they say, come up, it's a sign we'll go and fight. And if they say, we're coming down, it's a sign we will stay here and fight. And I hope you see the humor in Jonathan's thinking. He had decided to fight, so it didn't matter what the Philistines did. It's a sign. And whatever they responded, Jonathan was going to go to war. Now, the main point is in verse 6. With no guarantee of success, Jonathan was not afraid to fail. He had determined to fight without any assurance of the outcome. It may be that the Lord helps us, was as cocky as he allowed himself. Jonathan was going to try even though he didn't know how it would end. Your pastor has kept you informed of the crisis in Darfur, Sudan. We are now seven years into the conflict. More than 300,000 have been killed. Two million refugees, Arab Muslims, slaughtering African Muslims a completely Muslim province of Sudan committing suicide. Rape, torture, murder, slaughter, injustice, evil, all are common. Khalil Ibrahim is the leader of the Zagawa rebels. Abdul Wahid is the leader of the Four rebels. And these are the two largest African Muslim tribes in Darfur, and they have been fighting against the government, and they have been fighting against the Arab militia or the Jinjawee. Brandon Williams is a team member on our team in his mid-20s. He's a missionary in training with us in Sudan. He just finished a year of language school, and we found him an intern job working for an NGO, a non-government organization that does humanitarian assistance in Darfur. And for various reasons, every single worker in that humanitarian entity bailed. They left Sudan, and Brandon, a week into the job, found himself as the country director of a non-profit organization that is working in Darfur. A few days later, he received a message, and this message came to him from Ibrahim Khalil, who is the leader of these Zagawa rebels. And this is what the message said. We are tired of fighting. We are tired of Islam. We want you, Christians, to come and help us. We want you to teach our children the Bible, and we want you to bring us peace and development. Now, wouldn't it be ironic if a clueless 20-year-old solved the Darfur crisis? And wouldn't it be delicious if Jesus worked through an unknown to do what the United Nations and the African Union and Condoleezza Rice, George Clooney, and Brangelina have all failed to do? Why shouldn't a 20-year-old win the Nobel Peace Prize? Why shouldn't somebody in this room change the destiny of nations? Why shouldn't one of you 
walk out of those doors, shake the earth, and move its mountains? Why shouldn't someone in this room be the next Samuel Zwimmer, the great apostle to Islam, and lead the king of Saudi Arabia in the sinner's prayer? Why shouldn't someone in this room be the all mantle of Billy Graham and in humility evangelize the nation? Why shouldn't we? Why shouldn't this church? Why shouldn't you be the one who takes the gospel to the most inhospitable and inconvenient places on earth? Is it not fear of the attempt that aborts most victories for the kingdom before they're even born? And I want to urge and implore you, and I want to beseech you, don't be afraid to try, even if there is no guarantee of success. But I am not made for perilous quests, said Frodo. I wish I had never seen the ring. Why did it come to me? Why was I chosen? Such questions cannot be answered, said Gandalf. You may be sure that it was not for any merit that others do not possess, nor for power or wisdom at any rate. But you have been chosen, and therefore you must use such strength and such heart and such wit as you have. No one answered. The noon bell rang. Still no one spoke. Frodo glanced at all the faces, but they were not turned to him. All the council sat with downcast eyes as if in deep thought. A great dread fell on him, as if he was awaiting a pronouncement of some doom that he had long foreseen and vainly hoped might, after all, never be spoken. An overwhelming longing to rest and remain at peace in Nashville, Tennessee, by Bilbo's side, filled all of his heart. And at last, with some effort, he spoke and wondered to hear his own words, as if some other will was using his small voice. I will take the ring, he said, though I do not know the way. I will try. It may be that Jesus helps me. I think that this task is appointed for you, Frodo, said Elrond, and that if you do not find a way, no one will. This is the hour of the Shire folk when they arise from their quiet fields to take the towers and the councils of the great. It is not our part here to take thought only of a season or for a few lives of men or for a passing age of this world. We should seek a final end of this menace, Gandalf said, even if we do not hope to make one. Let us not be afraid to try. It may be that the Lord helps us, for nothing restricts the Lord from saving the inconvenient loss, whether by many or by few. Secondly, let us not be afraid to cry. In missions and in the postmodern world today, there is great temptation to dilute our message, that it becomes more palatable to the hearer. Transformational development is a buzzword in my circles for holism, and essentially the thinking is that there must be a balance between your words and between your deeds. And most of you would probably agree with that. But I want to ask you this morning to rethink that premise. And as pleasant as it sounds, I want to ask if it's biblically supported. St. Francis of Assisi allegedly said, Preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. 
I want to remind you this morning that biblically it is always necessary to use words. Humans are receptor-oriented communicators. They assign their own meaning to unexplained deeds. Not only did St. Francis probably never say the faulty line, he certainly did not live it. Get yourself a biography of his life. He preached everywhere, even to birds, for goodness sake. He marched right into the camp of the most fearsome ruler of his day, the great Muslim general Salah ad-Din, who conquered Jerusalem and preached the gospel to him. How's that for inconvenience? I'd like to take the real-life case of a SIM missionary to China. He determined that he would live the gospel. He would not speak it. He would live such an exemplary life in front of the Chinese that they would see his life, notice something distinct about it, come to him and ask questions about his faith, and then he would share the gospel at that point. Went to China, he did this for one year, two years, three years, four years, and a fifth year. After five years of living the Jesus life but not proclaiming, a Chinese man came up to him and said, I've been watching your life. There's something different about you. Can I meet with you and can we meet in private? And the missionary was elated. He was so excited. Finally, I've lived the Jesus life for five years. I've served people. I've helped them. I've blessed them. Now somebody wants to know. And they met in private. And the Chinese man looked at him and said with all earnestness, I just have to know, are you a vegetarian? True story. Five years of living the Jesus life. If you would boil down the message of the New Testament proclaimers to one word, I submit to you, it would be the word, repent. In Matthew 3, John appears preaching repent. In Mark 1, Jesus begins to minister preaching repent. In Mark 6, 12, all 12 disciples are gone, sent out preaching, and they say the message was repentance. In Peter's Pentecostal sermon of Acts 2, he culminates it with saying, repent all of you, he baptized Paul in Athens. The proof text, Acts 17, for cultural sensitivity and proclamation. And yet Paul ends his remarks by saying, These times of ignorance, you blockheads, God overlooked, but now commands men everywhere to repent. Jesus, in John 6, he feeds the 5,000 so they follow him for more food. You remember what Jesus says? You have to eat me. Does this offend you? What if you see the Son of Man ascend? The flesh profit nothing, the words that I give you, they are spirit and they are life. How radical, how essential. Jesus offends the feeding program beneficiaries. He says it is his word that gives life, not the food handout. Now because of time, and because this is a controversial issue, let me just take one biblical figure, John the Baptist. A man who was not afraid to cry. And by this, of course, I mean he was not afraid to cry, Repent! Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Jesus said that this John was the greatest of those born of women. Let me ask you then, if Jesus thinks that John is the best non-divine we have to offer, who did John feed? Who did John clothe? Who did John educate? The only water that John gave out was in orifices as he dunked people in the Jordan. John went out in the desert, insulted those who followed. You snakes, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? And no one born of woman, according to Jesus, has done it better. Please understand my context. In Sudan, 
we run schools for the orphan poor. In Sudan, we drill wells for the park. In Sudan, we feed the hungry and we educate the illiterate. In Sudan, we have in orphanages volunteers who hold convulsing babies that they not die. We do all of these things. These are signs of the kingdom and we do them gladly. But this is the reality of fear that I learned along the way. No one likes a proclaimer. No Muslim likes the good news. No Muslim likes to be told that Islam does not cut it and unless he repents, he's headed towards hell. No missionary likes constant rejection. No missionary likes to always be thought the fool. No missionary revels in being the village idiot with the heretical message. We get tired of the scorn. We get tired of the rolled eyes and the not subtle mocking. And as the years go by, we want to be liked. We want to be thanked. We want to be respected. And we tire of the inconvenience of an unpopular message. So we offer to the people something that they want. We build a school. We dig a well. We pass out medicine. And guess what? We're the good guy again. And we are thanked and we are blessed and we are praised and they interview us and put us on TV and our pictures in the paper. This is a reality that has happened to us. This is a temptation I fight. It is not yet one. In, in essence, though, we are proclaiming. And we can't, we must not, be afraid to cry. Nick Ripkin is a pseudonym of a missionary who worked amongst Somalis for years. The work progressed until there were a hundred Somali Muslims who came to Christ. But a day of persecution dawned and 96 of those 100 Muslim men believers from Somalia were martyred for their faith. And Nick says of those men and what he learned that the goal of persecution in the devil's mind is not to chase us away, it is to silence us. And when we shut up in the face of fear, we side with the persecutors. But when we stand and continue to proclaim, we stand with the persecuted. Recently, perhaps you saw it some months ago, a Saudi girl came to faith. Her father was a member of the religious police. He found out about her conversion. He killed his own daughter, but not before he cut out her tongue with a knife. Graphic, but demonically symbolic. The devil wants to shut down our crying. He doesn't necessarily have to remove us. If he silences us, he has rendered us ineffective. He uses fear to do it. Fear of man, fear of trouble, fear of rejection, fear of scorn, fear of being labeled as some wacky fundamentalist. After 96 of 100 of these Somali friends were martyred, Nick began an in-depth study around the world on this topic. And at the end of his study, and he talked to missionaries and he talked to Muslim converts, this is what he found, one staggering point. The Muslim believers said, the main thing that we have learned from Christians and from missionaries is how to fear. One missionary gets kicked out for witness and all the other missionaries decide to lay low for a while and not proclaim that they not get in trouble. At the first sign in Muslim countries of civil unrest or insecurity, it is the missionaries who get on the planes and leave. The first bombs have hardly fallen and all the missionaries are largely gone. We cannot be afraid to cry. Yet our crying does not have to be thrilled. Our crying does not have to be annoying. 
or flamboyant. Let me tell you a story from one of our team members in Darfur. This missionary wife has three children who are under the age of three. We have an English center in North Darfur, and she was sweeping the little courtyard. They live very simply, just like the people. A refugee woman knocked on the door and asked for some financial help. And our missionary co-worker invited her in, said, well, I won't give you money, but perhaps you can work with me and earn some income. And so she became the cleaner for that English center. And every day, this missionary wife would tell her a story. She was illiterate, the woman from the refugee camp. She couldn't read or write. She'd tell her a story about Jesus, tell her a Bible story, show her little clips of the Jesus film, and then gave her a Bible to take back to her husband and her brother who's still in the camp. And over the process of time, this woman gave her life, this Muslim woman gave her life to Lord Jesus. And so the discipleship process began, but being illiterate, she didn't know how to communicate back to her own. And so our missionary worker took little simple pages of paper and drew, divided into six sections and drew little stick figures and began to disciple this illiterate woman with stick figures. She could look at the stick figures, remember the Bible story, take it home to the refugee camp, and she'd tell the same story, give the same truth back to her Muslim husband and her Muslim brother. They were literate, they had the Bibles, they'd listen to her sick stories, they'd read the Bible, and they came to faith. Her brother was a driver for a humanitarian agency, and he was out driving his car, they got ambushed, he got beat within an inch of his life, a broken, bloody bruise, they couldn't help him there, so he was airlifted back to the capital city. He's waiting to see the doctor, and an Arab man saw him all battered and beat up and said, Can I pray for you in the name of Jesus? And he was shocked because Muslims don't do that. And so they met in a private place, and the Arab man revealed, I am a follower of Jesus. He said, I am too. The guy prayed for him, and he was instantly healed. He didn't have to go to the doctor. So the refugee from Darfur said, Can I stay in your house for three months just to learn more about the Lord? He did. He was discipled. He went back, went back to Darfur, began to help his brother-in-law and his sister grow in faith. They said, we can't keep this to ourselves. They went out walking to a nearby village. They found an old man who was blind. They prayed for him. You know, when you're young in faith, you're not far along enough to doubt. Jesus had healed him. He's going to heal you. The blind man was healed. He became a follower of Jesus. He said, let's have a meeting in our house. But the village kicked him out. The old blind man was not deterred. He said, I'm going to send you 12 young men. So he sent 12 young men back into the refugee camps with these two guys. They all came to the Lord. They're all now out witnessing. They're bringing people to the Lord and baptizing them in barrels. And here's my point. It all goes back to a simple missionary wife with three children under the age of three who was not afraid to cry. We cannot be afraid to cry. We cannot be afraid to cry. And lastly, we must not be afraid to die. It was the spring of 1940. Germany had overrun the defenses of France and Belgium. England had sent its army, the BEF, the British Expeditionary Force, to help. The cowardly Belgian king surrendered without a fight, and the French pulled back in fear. The British army ran for their lives and huddled together at Dunkirk. 300,000 soldiers, the vast majority of the British army, pinned against the sea by the superior German forces. It was a desperate day, and King George IV sent this message by radio to his taken troops. The decisive struggle is now upon us. Let no one be mistaken. It is no mere territorial conquest that our enemies are seeking. 
It is the overthrow complete and final of this empire and of everything for which it stands. And after that, conquest of the world. It is a life and death struggle for us all. And if their will prevails, they will bring to its accomplishment all the hatred and cruelty which they have already displayed. Confidence alone is not enough. It must be armed with courage and resolution, with endurance and self-sacrifice. Keep your hearts proud and your resolve unshaken. Let us go forward to that task as one man, a smile on our lips and our heads held high. And when the king sent this message, it was his conviction that all of these young men were going to die. There didn't seem to be a solution. And King George received a reply from his army commanders trapped at Dunkirk. It was only three words. But if not. I don't know if you're familiar, if you recognize those words. Biblically illiterate America misses it many times. In 1940, Britain knew their Bible. Three Hebrew youth refused to bow to Nebuchadnezzar's image of gold. He builds a murderous fire and gives them one more chance. And they respond, We have no need to answer you, O King. Our God is able to deliver us. He will deliver us. But if not, let it be known that we will not bow, we will not serve false gods, we will not surrender. Our God, my God, your God, He is able to deliver us. But if He does not, we will not be afraid to die. We will not be afraid of the inconvenience of death. You have heard this famous quote from the church fathers. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. If that is true, and I believe it is, then is it also true that we have not yet seen a breakthrough in the Muslim world because we have not yet planted enough seed, enough bloody seed. If it is true, and it is, that the death of martyrs leads to the life of the church, then why are we so afraid to die? And why will we not send missionaries to the Somalias of the world? And why do we shy away from the very thing that will bring life? I was talking with someone about sending personnel to Somalia. Not now, this mission leader said. It is too dangerous. Yes, it's dangerous. Faith does not deny facts. But perhaps Somalia is unreached because it has not yet been watered with enough martyrs' blood. We have been stingy with our seed. We scatter seed largely where it's safe and convenient, and we have forgotten that seed has to die in order for it to bear fruit. Galadriel said, The power of the enemy is growing. Sauron will use his puppet Saruman to destroy the people of Rohan. Isengard has been unleashed. The eye of Sauron now turns to Gondor, the last three kingdom of men. His war on this country will come swiftly. He senses the ring is close. The strength of the ring bearer is failing. In his heart, Frodo begins to understand. The quest will claim his life. You know this. You have foreseen it. It is the risk we all take. I do not talk about death cavalierly. We are not twisted jihadists who madly destroy ourselves. In fact, in Christianity, if you try to be a martyr, it doesn't count. I am talking about fear. I am talking about not being afraid to die, not being inconvenienced by death, not making your life choices based on fear. Dying biblically is not reserved for a heroic moment, 
According to the scriptures, we die daily. In 1988, I was a young college freshman. Two prominent professors at North Central fell into moral sin, and Dr. Meyer addressed us in chapel that week. He said, you don't wake up one morning and decide to commit adultery. All large choices are merely the culmination of a series of daily decisions. The decision to die for Jesus in the heroic sense is not ours to make. The decision to die daily is. And when we choose to die to our own desires, our own wills, our own flesh, our own convenience, when we submit to authority, when we submit to our roommate, when we submit to our peers, when we submit to our spouse, when we yield our rights, when we yield our opinions, when we yield our preferences, when we say yes to the Holy Spirit, when we say yes, I will give my life for the inconvenient loss, when we lay down our dreams to take up His, we hack away at that fear of dying and we prepare ourselves for reaching the inconvenient loss. I've referenced the Lord of the Rings several times this morning and I love the dwarf Gimli just before attacking Mordor. This is what he says. Certainty of death, small chance of success. Well, what are we waiting for? I'm not a prophet. I do not know what dreams or hopes or aspirations that are on your heart that God has put there. But what I do know is that God has hopes and dreams and aspirations for us far greater than anything we could conjure up for ourselves. I do know that God wants to shake the earth. I do know that left to this generation, demographically, are the hardest people to reach, the Muslim people. They are the ones that remain to be engaged and reached. And I do know that Jesus is asking our generation to do something about it. It is up to us. And I do know that the primary hindrance for the church of Jesus Christ to reach Muslim people is fear. It's not convenient to give your life for Muslims. It's not convenient to walk away from relationships. It's not convenient to forego further education possibly. It's not convenient to give up good job opportunities. It's not convenient to die. Yet in the name and the spirit of Jesus, overcoming all through his aid, we cannot, we will not, we must not be afraid to try. We will not be afraid to cry. We will not be afraid to die. We can reach the inconvenient law. I want to close with this question and then I'd like us to spend some time praying. What is your limit of convenience? What is your boundary where you will say to the Lord, I'll go this far and no further. I'll give you this much and no more. What are your fears? Perhaps they're in line with these three. Afraid to attempt something because it seems so grand and there's no guarantee. Afraid to be a proclaimer, to cry appropriately, repent, the Lamb of God. Afraid to die in the daily sense or in the grand sense. Or other fears that you alone know that restrict you from doing what God wants done in this church and in this town and in this state and in this nation and in this earth. What are those fears? What are your limits? Would you identify them in your own heart with the Holy Spirit right now? I want to ask you to close your eyes and bow your hands.
None of us are immune to fears. We all have them. And all of us, at some level, are bounded by our fear. All of us, at some level, are not completely obedient to the will of God because of some level, some restrictive level of fear of inconvenience. This has been a Church at Indian Lake podcast. Be sure to check out IndianLakeChurch.com for all updated news and information.